it's my pleasure today to introduce uh, Brian Rappin, who is an associate professor at the University of Southern California. Uh, uh, Dr. Rappin has uh, published two books and uh, numerous journal articles and uh, uh, in top uh, journals in the field of international relations. Uh, he, he is also uh, perhaps known to any of who follows international relations blogs, uh, probably all four of you in this room. Uh, uh, he and I both uh, contribute to a, a blog called Duck of Minerva, and, uh, and his work is uh, perhaps best known for his satirical takes on the field of political science. But in terms of his uh, scholarly uh, contributions uh, in uh, the literature, his uh, first book, uh, which came out in 2004 from uh, Cornell uh, University Press, is on topic of humanitarian intervention. It's called Partisan Interveners, uh, European Party, uh, Party Politics, and Peace Enforcement in the Balkans. And he had a book that just came out last year in 2012 from Cambridge University Press called Trust in International Cooperation, the Creation of International Security Institutions and the Domestic Politics of American Multilateralism. Uh, a topic that's near and dear to my own heart, probably yours as well. Uh, and But today's talk is going to be about a, a book in progress that's uh, actually under review, complete, that's on uh, European uh, security in the 1920s. So without further ado, Dr. Thank you. Oh, thanks so much. Uh, I'm going to see if you actually mean that at the end of the talk. Uh, Thanks so much for, for having me down here. Uh, I really appreciate it. I haven't been in Austin in, uh, I think, 11 years or something like that, and I didn't really get a chance to, to see it until this visit, so uh, I've had a great time. I appreciate it very much. Uh, like Josh said, today I'm going to try to give you a sense of the kind of theory and findings of this book that I have, uh, uh, this manuscript on diplomacy, uh, with a focus on the relations between France, Britain, and Germany in the, in the 1920s, and particularly security relations. Uh, it's motivated by a very simple theoretical question, which is, does diplomacy matter? Uh, so when we factor in power and foreign policy interest, does diplomacy affect international outcomes, important international events, one way or another? And it's also based on uh, it also uh, it's based on a simple empirical question as well. Can we imagine, based on what we know about the 1920s, a scenario in which Europe was not plunged uh, into another world war uh, in the late 1930s? Now, turning to the theoretical side, I think the conspicuous silence of the field on the subject of diplomacy, which is always surprises everyone, even in the international relations field itself, um, the conspicuous silence seems to indicate that people don't really think that diplomacy matters. So where diplomacy has been taken up, it's generally uh, as an institution or a practice of international relations, people writing about the opening of embassies and diplomatic immunity, things like that, as an explanandum rather than an explanand dance. Um, or if it's uh, taken up explicitly in recent years, mostly as cheap talk, right? Something that doesn't really affect uh, the course of international politics. Now, why is this? So I think, I think it's because of the structural bias of the discipline which I think something, it's something that has persisted even as the focus of international relations literature, at least on the science side, has shifted from a kind of macro-level systemic focus to a more micro-level strategic interaction, we still see this, dip, uh, this structural bias. Because diplomat, uh, diplomacy is something that individuals engage in. It's an act of agency, right? And therefore, we have a hard time coping with it with our largely structural views. Uh, now, if international outcomes are as... Uh, we've been told for a long time, and a lot of people still think, simply the function of the distribution of power, 
There's no real need to study diplomacy. Um, diplomats, by which I mean any state decision maker involved in communication and negotiation with other states, not just foreign service officers, I want to make that clear. Um, diplomats become just transmission belts, right, for state interest and state power. So they have success when they're powerful, but that's not due to anything unique about themselves or how they approach their task, right? What, and therefore, what they do is ultimately inconsequential, right? You're just essentially the transmission belt for these larger structural forces. Now, uh, there's been a lot of recent literature by rationalists, kind of formal modelists, oftentimes, who stress that state communication can matter, but only if it's backed by these so-called costly signals, right? Uh, this applies to both efforts at demonstrating resolve, also uh, efforts to reassure others of one's intentions. Uh, but the diplomat's ability to send or receive a costly signal in this literature has nothing really to do with them. They're essentially substitutable. So. Um, the ability to send a costly signal has to do with whether you, what the kind of your domestic institutional makeup. If you work for a democratic country, you can credibly signal resolve because you have transparency and things like that. But that has nothing to do with you, right? Um, and the ability to receive signals and interpret them is taken for granted. In rationalism, all people perceive the same information similarly, right? Um, now, I think that this idea, as you should probably clear already, that diplomacy, which is probably the most prevalent activity in international affairs, the idea that it doesn't matter, it strikes me as supremely implausible, right? But I don't think we can understand it if we take a purely structural focus. So what I'm going to do is suggest that certain international events and outcomes are impossible to count for, uh, account for without an account of diplomacy and what it is. That states essentially can overplay or underplay the hand that they're dealt. Um, based on how they conduct diplomacy. In other words, diplomacy has value. Now, demonstrating this uh, requires showing two things. First, that statesmen, decision makers, leaders, elites, whatever you want to say, what do you want to call them, must have a choice about what to do. That is, structure doesn't dictate their actions, right? And second, that those actions, we, we want to see if they actually have an effect on outcomes uh, independent of structural factors. And this includes what I... Uh, by structure, I mean power and, mo and also interest. States might find negotiating a, a mutually beneficial agreement very easy if their interests are closely aligned. But that has nothing to do with diplomacy. That's neither, that's neither diplomatic success or diplomatic failure. Okay? <coughs> now, because standard structural accounts are going to maintain that this, essentially the strong do as they will and the weak as they must. Um, and, uh, and therefore, we might, we might attribute diplomatic success to something that has nothing to do with diplomacy. Okay. Um, so, what do I do? Well, first thing I do is kind of a review of international relations scholarship, either that deals with diplomacy either explicitly or implicitly. And when you do this, it kind of reveals the existence of three styles of diplomacy. The first is uh, what is known as coercive bargaining. So, states or really any political actor uses, they use threats uh, and exploit leverage to pressure others to concede. You make high demands, you refuse to budge, to demonstrate your credibility, you hold issues that are dear to others hostage for leverage. Diplomacy here is a kind of high-stakes game of poker in which states have no incentive to show their cards, right? Or believe what others say about how good their cards are. Uh, and this parallels a kind of uh, or a, a style of negotiation we see in the liter psychological literature on negotiation called value claiming. It's also sometimes called distributive or conflictual uh, negotiating. The second conception of diplomacy is what I call reasoned dialogue. 
in which states are uh, thought to engage in honest and frank discussions of their aims and goals in the hopes of finding a mutually beneficial agreement. And this kind of reasoned dialogue would be marked by good faith and goodwill. We see this in English school writings. Uh, we also see it in, uh, in kind of Habermasian um, uh, constructivism uh, that some people have, uh, uh, have engaged in in, in recent years. This kind of diplomacy, uh, it implies that states aren't acting strategically in the sense that they're not constantly keeping their cards close to their vest because you can't re really reach a, uh, a mutually beneficial deal if you don't reveal and trust the uh, information, right? That's the good faith part, part of it. Um, and it also suggests something more than an instrumental approach towards others. Um, I call this liberal diplomacy as well as reasoned dialogue. This liberal diplomacy um, stresses that uh, political actors can have kind of genuine empathy, that's the goodwill, towards others, right? That they want them to also be satisfied with the particular outcome. Now this doesn't imply, I want to stress, that states are simply capitulating. Liberal diplomacy is about generating value for both sides, right? Uh, and in fact, it parallels a kind of negotiating that we see in the psychological literature on negotiating called value creating. It's sometimes called integrative negotiating, right? You're trying to integrate interest and come out with something that all are happy with. Now, this is, those two, although those are the main, uh, they parallel the two styles of negotiation we see in the psychological literature and we find parallels in the international relations literature, it doesn't exhaust all the diplomatic styles. And uh, really, what I found to be the, perhaps the most interesting and, and in this talk the most important, um, the third conception of diplomacy I call pragmatic statecraft. And this is what you're going to find in classical realist theory. Um, so, realist, stress, <coughs> calm, and an unemotional evaluation of your environment, right? You're going to focus on tangible rather than ephemeral gains. You're going to think long-term, and you're going to make short-term sacrifices <coughs> to reach those goals. You're going to manage your resources so as to focus on vital interest and concede on other smaller points rather than expending valuable diplomatic capital to reach them. So the good diplomat is one who constantly adapts to situational constraints. Good diplomacy is the cold, sober evaluation of one's um, situation. And um, when, you, when you look at some of the realist work on diplomacy, you start to realize that the kind of caricature offered by realism by its opponents, but also some of its kind of proponents is, well, it's a caricature. Right? This idea that the realists are about saber-rattling and constantly trying to leverage uh, the use of force is just not true. In fact, realists generally admonish proponents of, and advocates of coercive diplomacy. Those ad coercive bargaining is about uh, demonstrating a resolve by taking firm positions on issues of tiny importance, right? which a realist would say, don't do. Um, Instead, the, what oftentimes is the best thing to do in pragmatic statecraft is to show consideration and understanding of the interests of the other side because this is the best way of instrumentally reaching your goals, right? Realist stress perspective taking, the understanding of one's interest as an important conception of diplomacy, not out of genuine empathy, but as of a kind of instrumental empathy. And statecraft in, uh, requires that you remain opening to, quote, update, right, your, uh, your views of an others' intentions. If, you, if others are cooperative, you want to recognize that they're cooperative, right, rather than engage in kind of fruitless um, and pointless conflict. Um, as it involves adjusting the circumstances, particularly the distribution of power, 
Pragmatic statecraft is marked neither by consistent value claiming, right, that coercive bargaining, or value creating, um, but in fact adapts to the circumstances. And this therefore creates the possibility of these interesting Baptist bootlegger coalitions, for instance, between realists on the one hand, but also liberals as well, right? And we think in our theory generally of realists and liberals as being these poles on a certain spectrum, but in fact historically, and I would also say theoretically, that's hardly true. Um, and that becomes one of the more interesting things about this piece. Okay, now, we need to operationalize these different conceptions of diplomacy into a kind of theory of diplomacy. And what I want to do is kind of figure out, or what motivated me is figure out if we can specify, theoretically, who is more likely to engage in these different types of diplomacy. So rather than assuming all diplomacy is coercive bargaining, or reason dialogue, or pragmatic statecraft, I think of these as all as kind of different diplomatic styles. Um, that some are just going to be more predisposed to than others. They provide a kind of menu of choice for diplomats. In other words, uh, what the, words I, the terms I use, I try to behavioralize them. Rather than thinking of IR paradigms as theoretical constructs that explain everything to us, uh, in the world to us, I think of them as heuristics that guide actual people engaged in the policy-making process. And if you do that, it allows <coughs> us to think about how uh, diplomacy might be an active agency. If in the same structural situation, someone with the same interests and the same beliefs as, uh, as somebody else engages in a different style of diplomacy, then we can say, well, diplomacy is agency. Now, negotiating, this, here's when I turn to the psychological literature on negotiation. Because negotiating style has also been found to affect outcomes in the psychological literature on negotiating. So independent of the negotiating task given in an experimental setting, people bring to the table different preferences for different diplomatic styles that have been shown to independently affect the outcomes that arise. Now, two individual level motivations, uh, so psychological attributes of decision makers, have been found to affect the choice of these different negotiating styles. First is what's called social motivation. So basically, negotiators intrinsically have different preferences as to what they regard as the ideal distribution of benefits. Some are more pro-social, that is they seek to maximize joint benefits or ensure something like equal uh, satisfaction and fairness in, in negotiating outcomes. Now others, the one more familiar to political scientists, uh, have a different social motivation, a pro-self, right? A completely egoistic um, uh, orientation towards negotiating. So that's the first kind of cleavage that I talk about, or dichotomy. Pro-socials are generally found, not surprisingly, to adopt an integrative negotiating style, whereas pro-selves adopt a value-claiming, um, distributive negotiating style. Pro-socials have been found experimentally. They make more favorable initial offers. They make overall more concessions. They make fewer positional commitments, that is, they don't draw as many red lines that they say they won't cross. They don't exploit bargaining leverage when they have it, in the same way that pro-selves do. But, we should stress, pro-social behavior is contingent on reciprocity. So pro-socials don't consistently choose the outcome that maximizes even joint gains if the other is not cooperating. That is what's known in this psychological literature as behavioral assimilation. That is, if others are cooperating, if others are engaged in, in distributed bargaining, a pro-social will eventually do the same. So I think it's inaccurate to describe pro-socials as lacking in egoism or being altruistic. These are not suckers, right? These are just people who prefer mutually satisfactory outcomes. Now, 
Psychological researchers think that social motivations are accompanied by certain heuristics, basically cognitive shortcuts that tell individuals how the world works and what their others, what their interactions with others will generally be like. But heuristics, as cognitive shortcuts, distort reality by definition, and they interfere with the accurate interpretation of information. Heuristics lead individuals to engage in what psychologists call confirmatory information search. You search out and you interpret incoming information so as to be in line with these pre-existing beliefs of yours. So, what do we take from that? Well, pro-socials are going to be more open to signals of cooperative intent than pro-selves because it confirms their pre-existing beliefs that joint games and win-win situations are possible. They're more inclined to dismiss coercive bargaining by others as a kind of cheap talk negotiating. Whereas I think pro-selves will find distributive, coercive bargaining by others to be a genuine signal of malign intention. And efforts, perhaps even costly ones, by others to reassure someone through integrative negotiation will be regarded as uh, cheap talk aiming at exploitation. So costly signaling may or may not be seen as more credible than cheap talk. It depends on the recipient and his heuristics, his social motivation and the type of talk. All right. So, psychological researchers, that was social motivation. Psychological researchers also point to the role played in negotiation by what's called epistemic motivation, which is another, another psychological individual level attribute. And what epistemic motivation does is moderates the use of heuristics. Um, so, uh, epistemic motivation has basically been defined as the need to develop a rich and accurate understanding of the world. What are we talking about here? Basically, people with epistemic motivation are more reflective, they're more open-minded, they're more willing to think outside the box, they're more willing to think uh, about whether they have biases and try to correct them, right? So those who are lower in epistemic motivation, those who lack it, demonstrate what psychologists call a need for closure. Their information processes uh, are marked by what's called seizing and freezing. They feel an urgency to make a decision quickly. They're disinclined to revisit it, right? And in other words, people who have a need for cognitive closure are um, less committed to developing, developing a kind of completely objective and comprehensive view of the situation they're in. Now, if we end up taking crudely and distinguishing between high and low epistemic motivation and these different types of social motivations, we can generate these four types of negotiating styles that I show here. So basically, pro-selves with low epistemic motivation, I argue are going to engage consistently in coercive bargaining. They are not going to update their understanding about the other side's type. They're going to generally assume that they're maligned and, uh, and that they're locked in a zero-sum situation. Or they're going to do so more slowly, right, given their higher degree of cognitive coast, uh, Closure. But pro-selves with a high epistemic motivation, they're going to share this egoistic orientation of the coercive bargain, right? But they're going to adjust their behavior to suit the situational circumstances. They're going to be pragmatists who find themselves better able to overcome what psychologists sometimes call the fixed pie bias, the idea that interests are zero-sum and not um, positive-sum in nature. So they're better able to understand when it might be better to cooperate instrumentally than to, uh, than to contend with others. Now, pro-socials with a low epistemic motivation are the rosy-eyed idealists that E.H. Carr told us long, uh, about 
a long time ago. They believe a deal can always be found. They give others the benefit of the doubt. They consistently pursue integrative negotiation, which in the absence of reciprocity amounts to what negotiating theorists would call obliging behavior. And what an IR we call appeasement. Right? Um, I think this box is almost empty in international relations. I don't think there are many in that box. And, and I think we can, we can talk about that. Some people might like that. Some people might say, well, obviously. Um, but in any case, they don't figure prominently. There's some other reasons I think they don't figure prominently. But what, what we do see a lot is pro-socials with a high epistemic motivation. Prefer integrative negotiation. Prefer to create value. Better able, though, to recognize when the other side is intransigent. And therefore, you can't make a deal with them. And shift, therefore, to a coercive bargaining style that matches their opponent. The preference for value creating, but sometimes out of necessity, becomes value claiming. In the book, I call this liberal diplomacy. We already talked about this, or liberal dialogue, reason dialogue, whatever. All right. Now, the difference between these two types, pro-self and pro-social, we want to know where these come from. Which is another way of saying, how do we know who's going to engage in what type of diplomacy? The difference, I think, here is a moral one. I think this is a moral values difference. It's not as simple as saying pro-selves are amoral or immoral and pro-social are, are moral. But rather, I draw on the moral psychology literature, hence the kind of subtitle of the talk, right, to um, distinguish uh, between these two different types. And I basically say liberal diplomacy rests on the moral foundation of what Jonathan Haidt, who's one of the, who's kind of the great moral psychologists of, uh, of this generation, right? And his collaborators call harm slash care, harm and care, uh, as well as fairness and reciprocity. What does this mean? Harm and care. And basically, morality in this, under this particular foundation is concern for the suffering of others, virtues of caring and compassion, right? Fairness and reciprocity. Individuals should be treated equally, right? To deny such equality is to, uh, is to treat them unfairly and unjustly, right? Moral behavior under these two foundations is essentially what we know as um, enlightenment value that, places the, that stresses the value of the individuals, right? And these are sometimes called the individualizing fountains or the uh, foundations or the ethics of autonomy, right? Well, I think that's the, that's the moral basis of liberal diplomacy. But pro-self diplomacy also has a moral basis. And here I don't want to say that essentially that there's bad and there's good. But rather, it's just a different moral foundation, right? Pro-self motivation is driven with by what's called conservation values under the Schwartz definition, the great, one, another great theorist of values, what Jonathan Haidt calls the ethics of community. And these have, there are a couple different moral foundations that are part of that broader category of ethics of community, um, authority and respect, right? In-group loyalty, those are the moral values in, the, in this particular uh, ethical system. And all of these values, what do they do? They serve to bind individuals to the group, which provides protection from a dangerous world, right? And in international relations, that leads to a kind of pro-self nationalist bias. Um, and these are called the binding foundations. Now, that's the second part of the value. I talked about the value. This is the values of diplomacy. That the, basically, the different diplomatic styles are largely driven by moral differences. Right? Now, as these moral foundations and values have been shown to be at the core of political ideology, we can specify who on the political spectrum is most inclined to pursue different diplomatic styles. I'm wondering whether I have, actually have time to do this. I don't. 
I'm going to skip this, and I'm happy to talk about this in a little bit. Basically, what I try to do is because of what we know about the links between moral foundations and political ideology, I can uh, and the, the connection between uh, uh, that and negotiating style, I develop these expectations, basically, about where we expect to see different diplomatic styles, right? That basically what we're going to see is that the far-right prefers coercive bargaining, the center-right prefers pragmatic statecraft, the center-left prefers liberal dialogue, and the far-left prefers this idealistic appeasement, right? Um, and then basically what I do from there, uh, so what I like to do for the rest of the talk is show you all of these things in practice and show you that they do map onto the political spectrum as I expected um, and, uh, and show you also how that I think they affected the course of important events in the 1920s. Okay, so if there was ever a hard case for diplomacy, it's the 1920s in Western Europe, right? Germany, of course, under the terms of Versailles, occupied until 1935. That occupation was to be phased out in three successive, successive withdrawals by zone beginning in 1925. Um, the left bank of the German Rhineland was permanently demilitarized. <coughs> Germany was largely disarmed. It was, uh, this disarmament was inspected by the Allied occupation force. Um, despite Germany's prostrateness uh, and their weakness, right, France is, of course, also still obsessed with security, right? Um, in light of German animosity about the peace treaty, but also Germany's perceived demographic and economic advantages, that in the long term Germany was going to be a threat. And therefore France was highly desirous of a British security guarantee. They thought they couldn't do it alone. What they most needed was British help. So um, the book is about the 20s as a whole. I'm going to focus on this mid-20s period where we see a particular configuration of party uh, governments a center-left government in France, a center-right government in Germany and Britain that allow for a kind of Baptist bootlegger coalition that produces an unlikely diplomatic success, given everything we know about the state of relations in the early 1920s between these countries. Well, the precipitating force or event is the Allies refused to withdraw from the first zone of occupation in 1925. Uh, on schedule, basically due to pretty small German disarmament infractions, leading to pronounced fears in Germany that the occupation was go basically going to be de facto permanent. So Germany's foreign minister was someone by the name of Gustav Dresemann, and he sought through diplomacy to reverse Germany's declining fortunes and its persistent role as the, what he called the object of international negotiations. He wanted Germany to be an active subject um, exercising agency in international affairs. And he saw his own political party as a vehicle for such an approach. He was the leader of what was called the, um, the Deutsche Volkspartei, the, the DVP, uh, which was essentially the main center-right uh, party in the German political system. And he saw basically that the DVP, along with some other centrist parties, would mediate between the far right and the far left that great diagonal, he called it, without which no statesmanlike policy uh, can be conducted. So Stresemann is the consummate realist, putting vital interests first, not trying to accomplish everything at once, rather putting into place a long-term plan. Uh, he has this wonderful quote, a nation must not adopt the attitude of a child that writes a list of its wants on Christmas Eve, which contains everything that the child will need for the next 15 years. 
Good diplomacy, said, depends on the actual restriction of these aims and the consequent abandonment of a policy that attempts to advance in every direction at once. Well, that is the opposite of, in some ways, of coercive bargaining, which is all about inflating your demands, right, only to bargain them down. Um, now, this was particularly important for Stresemann given Germany's disarmed state, which many, he recognized, did not want to admit because it was emotionally painful. Power politics works to our disadvantage presently, he writes. The only policy which can succeed is that which aims to become a worthwhile ally for other nations so that at the moment of becoming a useful, useful ally to receive from the other side what you never get with old buried guns. So this is obviously... Uh, and there are thousands of, well, maybe not thousands, but dozens of other ways in which you can show that Stresemann's cooperative approach is instrumental <laughs> in nature, right? Nations are always egoistic and cooperative relations with other states depended on what he called parallel interest. Now, the most important interest to Germany is the end to occupation. And this, Stresemann recognizes, requires a prior rapprochement with France because Germany is simply not strong enough uh, to contend with France um, otherwise. And owing, I say, to its epistemic motivation, Stresemann is capable of taking the perspective of the other side, of recognizing French fears, even if he doesn't understand them. He calls them comprehensible, though absurd. Um, and after reassuring France, in Stresemann's mind, Germany can then focus attention on changing the borders in the east with France and Br French and British support or acquiescence. But you can't do that unless you unless you transform relations with them first. So he's thinking in steps, pragmatically, rather than demanding a resolution of all German interests at once. So to reassure France and to block what he feared most, which is a, a renewed Franco-British alliance, Stresemann proposes a multilateral security pact in which France and Germany are both going to legally renounce the use of force to change their mutual border. And this was going to be backed, most importantly, by a British guarantee of both sides against aggression from one another. So demonstrating what I would call this instrumental empathy, the German foreign minister understands that reassurance about German intentions is going to require more than words. And so what he does is he embeds certain costly signals uh, of reassurance uh, in his proposal. First this guarantee of the current star ter uh, territorial status quo between the two countries amounts to a so-called renunciation of the Alsace-Lorraine, which was very difficult and costly for Stresemann to say publicly in Germany, given the, um, the, the, uh, the irredentist um, nature of the German right, far right in particular. And second, to alleviate French concerns that Germany was essentially just trying to tie French up by treaty, uh, so that it could then move militarily toward the east, he also simultaneously proposes that he will uh, negotiate arbitration treaties with Poland and Czechoslovakia. So in other words, he doesn't engage in this value-claiming coercive bargaining, um, and rather than making the German renunciation of the Alsace contingent on reciprocal French concessions in the areas of German disarmament or the evacuation of Cologne, or even more so the alleviation of the conditions of occupation, which are eventually basically like martial law, he explicitly advises his representatives to separate these questions, to not link them, right, as a way of credibly indicating that Germany did not have unlimited, unreasonable desires, right? Um, this, he thought, would create a climate of trust that would allow him to secure those goals down the line. He called these the ramifications 
or the Rückwirkungen in Germany, right? Or the logical corollaries, he sometimes calls it. Um, now, it might seem clear that this was just for Germany, well, this is all they could do, right? This was structurally determined, right? What else, what other choice does a weak country have? Um, well, if that is the case, I think Stresemann would have been surprised here because, well, Stresemann believed that, but he would have not uh, be recognized that there were plenty in Germany who did not take this particular diplomatic style. And, and um, he comes under great criticism from the German far right in particular, the Deutsche uh, Nationale Volkspartei, I think, Nationalistische Volkspartei. I can't remember the exact German. Uh, you all don't care. Um, anyways, they were in cabinet as well. He had a coalition with the far right. Um, and they tried to stress, uh, to force Stresemann to resign in several instances. Um, they wanted to stipulate prior concessions made that the French would have to make before even discussing or coming to talk about a, tr uh, a security guarantee. They opposed giving away the assaults of rain for nothing. They explicitly linked successful conclusion of this pact to other alleviation of the Rhineland, meaning they inflated their demands. And I don't think they actually inflated them. They insisted that this was uh, Germany's right. This was essentially an intensely emotional approach to diplomacy that, uh, that very clearly, um, uh, very clearly uh, contrasted with um, Stresemann's kind of cold sober. Um, one of the centrist politicians who was uh, Stresemann's ally called this uh, akin to a person missing both legs who threatens not to dance. Um, anyways, what, whether this is going to work depends on two things. How it's perceived in Britain and how it's perceived in France. So basically this outcome is essentially has three necessary and sufficient conditions. Um, well, Britain, governed by uh, a very centrist Tory government with a very moderate foreign secretary, uh, someone by the name of Austin Chamberlain, who was also a self-described realist like Stresemann. And we see this both as this pro-self and this high epistemic motivation in this early memo, which is a kind of blueprint of his foreign policy thinking at the time. A successful for, uh, foreign policy depends first on a clear appreciation of the facts, he writes, of the situation with which we have to deal, and secondly, on an equally clear conception of British interests and of their relations to the facts. And in a situation of such uncertainty, the only sound line of British policy is the path of British interest. Pro-self, high epistemic motivation. So he diagnoses the problem for Britain, Britain's main interest, as the emotional cycle of fear and hatred that exists between France and Germany and threatens to ignite a conflict in the future that would drag Britain in, um, maybe against, it, or against, against, its, you know, uh, against its will, but not against its interests. Right? And so therefore, it's in Britain's long-term interest to provide security to these two powers so that by guaranteeing the status quo, the kind of calm, lack of, or the, the, the hatred and fear will subside over time, inducing a more pragmatic approach by both France and Germany. He wants to induce realism, basically, through British realism. So Chamberlain also, so he thinks that, yes, they should provide this security guarantee. And he also wants to draw Germany into this new concert of Europe. He thinks this is kind of, uh, that he doesn't like doing this. He doesn't like Germany. Right? But he recognized Germany could not be kept prostrate forever, will eventually emerge, reemerge to the ranks of the great powers. Best to redress their grievances now through diplomacy and, and tame Germany rather than having the German revanche that, of course, we see in the <laughs> Despite his own anti German bias, he appreciates what Stresemann does, the signals that he's sending with, um, with this um, uh, memorandum. But 
he faces opposition from the right in his party that had the same diagnosis of the situation on the continent, thinks the Franco-German rivalry is a problem, but want to take advantage, uh, uh, but what they want to do is withhold any British promise to guarantee this pact, right? Withhold it as a bargaining trip to try to induce better French behavior vis-a-vis -vis the Germans. They want to engage in coercive leverage, whereas Stresemann thinks that's short-sighted and wants to make that pledge, right? So as to propel these negotiations forward. And it's only because Chamberlain threatens to resign that his policy is carried forward. So, that's important. Britain, if they don't offer this guarantee, France will not come to the table. I think that's, we can say counterfactually, that's almost 100% uh, true. But, French diplomatic style also matters. Had the right been in power in France, which it wasn't, this was a French leftist government led by the radicals in coalition with the socialists called the Cartel des Gauches. Um, if the right had been in power, the German initiative, I think, would have been completely stillborn. Germany, in fact, had made such an offer to Poincaré, the conservative for, uh, um, sorry, premier uh, of just a couple years before, who had dismissed it as kind of, uh, as, uh, as worthless and, uh, not, and, not, uh, and not necessary given France's preeminence. Right? But the, Fr and, um, the French left, even though they didn't trust Germany, remained open to exploring this concept. And I think that's a function of the epistemic motivation that the French liberals had. Rather than denigrating the idea, right, expressing pessimism, these are all value-claiming strategies. Right? Um, the cartel de gauche de, uh, greets the German memorandum warmly. Briand, who takes over as foreign minister and later as premier, says the Germans had acted courageously, right? They recognized the German memorandum as an earnest expression of pacific intentions, which agree with their own. Now, you couldn't describe the French left, I should be clear, as any more trusting of Germany or any less doggedly determined to protect French interests than the right. There was simply no daylight in 1925 between the right and left's conception of the Versailles order and the German threat. Instead, they were just simply more open to exploring ideas. Chamberlain describes Briand as a man of supple and ingenious mind, capable of admitting disagreeable truths and forming broad and liberal views. I think that shows how epistemic motivation is part of, of kind of the, the liberal approach to politics. Um, but France's diplomacy is not just a simple capitulation. I just want to be clear about that. To be a liberal is not to be a wuss. Right? Um, it's basically about exploring options to reach win-win outcomes. Right? So the French offer their own version of this multilateral security pact, right? in which Germany joins the League of Nations with all of the obligations to collectively enforce the peace, even against the Soviet Union. Uh, they want France to be able to guarantee militarily Germany's tr uh, treaties with Poland and Czechoslovakia. They want to authorize Britain and France to use force in the event of any breach of the Versailles uh, Treaty's provisions on disarmament and demilitarization of the Rhineland, right? This was not a simple, yes, we will give you the store, Gustav, because we trust you. But the way that they do this is critical, right? France doesn't make positional commitments. They say, this is our idea, but they don't present it as a take it or leave it. There are no preconditions for negotiating, right? The British report, Briand had no intention of dictating the sense of the German reply. He wished to give them full freedom as to the character of their answer and not in any way to appear to force upon them a yes or a no, right? All of this, uh, I, I, should, I think I'm going to skip to the end, all of this begets a certain 
um, style of negotiating uh, or, or um, trust, I don't, trusting is the wrong word, but an open and frank discussion of interest both leading up to the, and also at the convocation of the Locarno Conference, which, was, which is pictured here. This is a meeting of France, Britain, and Germany, as well as the Italians and the Czechs and the Poles and somebody else, the Belgians. I forget the Belgians. Um, uh, who come together and negotiate basically a pact along the lines that Stressemann uh, has suggested, but also on the remaining contentious points, the Germans, despite the fact that they are the most weak, actually obtain all, or win, win might be the wrong word, but obtain. Um, uh, their, the outcome reflects what their preference is more than any other of the other countries, right? And then this begets another a series of concessions made subsequently, just as Stresemann had thought, right, as a result of the climate of trust that was created as a result of the success of this conference. So in mid-November, just after October 25, when the conference was, the Allies send a note listing their envisioned alleviations of the martial law that existed in the Rhineland occupation. Stressemann confesses these are much more considerable than any of us could have imagined. And they stress that this is uh, a reciprocal gesture. So in transmitting this, this note to Germany, the Allies write, in the same spirit of confidence, good faith, and goodwill, the powers concerned in the occupation of the Rhineland have decided in regard to this occupation to introduce all the modifications <coughs> compatible with the Treaty of Versailles. Um, just to conclude, there is, I think, and this was my initial understanding of it, or a natural inclination to think of this as just one big package deal, right? Like France wants security from Britain, right, or from Germany through Britain. Britain wants peace between these two countries, right? Germany wants normality, right? They want to they want to take a step towards normality, and so this interest is uh, this outcome is readily explainable by interests, right? And diplomacy, therefore, shouldn't matter. Well, there's a number of reasons why that, I think, that isn't the case. Um, first of all, that might be interest, but interests have to be revealed. And you can't create win-win outcomes like this unless there's, uh, unless people are, are openly talking about their interests, their red lines, which was what happened at the Locarno Conference, right? And the second is that the, the practitioners themselves note that had Stressemann come to them and propose this kind of exchange early on, right? We'll give you alleviation of the conditions of the, of the Rhineland in exchange for you renouncing the Alsace. They would, uh, they would have sent Stresemann home. That basically, it was only because Stresemann had engaged in this prior process of reassurance and rapprochement through this pragmatic statecraft that they were willing ever to get to the point where he could actually pass that offer. In fact, when Stresemann first made his offer, they said, what else do you want? And what they, what, and he said, I don't have anything else in mind, right? When in fact he did have something else in mind and got those very things that initially the Brits and the French said that they would never offer but then come to offering, right? Just shortly after Locarno. That, I think, is this effect of the, or this value of so, uh, in this particular case. So I'll leave it with there. I'm sorry, I, I probably went long, and I'm, and I, I'm sure you have more questions than, than, than I have answers. But uh, with that, I think Josh was going to field questions for yeah. me. But thanks very much for your... Uh,
I'm going to uh, uh, collect questions, and before I do, I wanted to make a, one quick announcement that the next uh, uh, session that uh, is going to be happening uh, for the Strauss Center on this, uh, for the International Security Speaker Series is on February 14th, and it's Richard Samuels talking about uh, Japan 311 and the catastrophe that occurred then. Uh, it is called uh, Japan's 311 Catastrophe, the Rhetoric of Crisis and Political Change. And so uh, let me go ahead and open it up for questions. Uh, we usually like to have uh, an LBJ student off ask the first question, and I'm going to take the, uh, the moderator's prerogative and insert one uh, at the same time, and we'll collect several uh, as we go. So uh, uh, let me go ahead and take the question right here. Okay. Brandon Archuleta, I'm a first year grad student here. Brandon, is that? Yes. Okay. Um, who sets the tone here? Is it the head of government who says that we're going to take a pro-social, pro-self sort of uh, view on diplomacy, or is it ad hoc where he appoints agents of the state and they negotiate on behalf of the state right. and, and work through all these things? Let me collect uh, uh, one more over here, and then I'll, and then I'll ask one. Yeah. Oh, 30 years ago or so, in the wake of the Camp David agreement, there was a lot of interest in the, structure, the way the structure of a negotiation affects the outcome, the work of Roger Fisher and Bill Urey. I wonder if you can place your uh, arguments and analysis in that context and give us some sense of how it differs. And, and in the middle, and by structure, you're meaning, so I, I don't... I, single negotiating text, this kind of approach to... Oh, right, right. right the whole uh, business of, of the role of the design of a negotiation and the success of an outcome. Right, right. Yeah, I'm going to ask a third question. Uh, sort of fast forward, this uh, this moment seems like it was opportune for peaceful resolution that we end up later uh, in World War II. So it seems like how does um, how do, how does the distribution of either personalities or uh, the partisan distribution of uh, negotiating styles or the national aggregation of negotiating styles change so much that we end up with such unfavorable outcomes later. Um, and so I'll, I'll leave it there. Let's take those first three questions, and then we'll open it up for another round. Sure. Um, on the design and process, I'm going to punt. <laughs> because uh, I, don't, I don't get that. I, I, I just don't get that nitty gritty. I, I mean, my, basically, I, I'm trying to get between that really kind of like how many drafts are we doing, how many subcommittees are working with it, the, the experts meet and they bring it to the political types. There's that. And that's so in the weeds that the IR theory people up here just don't care. Right? And so I'm trying to get in that mid-level here where we can start talking about micro-level outcomes, right, um, and take process seriously while at the same time engaging theory. That might strike you as a cop-out. I don't think I'm missing any particular argument, any alternative account for what happened at Locarno by, by ignoring that. But, it, but if people disagree, I, 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 should, I should take uh, another uh, take another look. The principal aid, or well, there's this question of kind of the principal agency that Brandon asked, which is essentially, who are what is the state in a sense, right? Or who are the key leaders, and therefore what does what might this say about um, about ordinary diplomacy? Because Basically, what I'm doing is I'm picking a particular set of cases that are high politics, right? This, these are the most important issues going on in foreign policy involving these countries, well, at least particularly for Germany, right? Uh, Britain and France have other things that they're doing, but still, these are the most important, and therefore, they're going to attract 
um, the most attention and therefore are going to have political uh, considerations always be there, meaning that there's much less of a leash given to um, given to the, the, the civil servants, right, and the key foreign policy uh, and, the, and the key professional diplomats. Now, I will tell you a couple of stories about that. Uh, well, first of all is I think that um, the, the diplomats, the professional diplomats who can kind of adapt to the, the style, the diplomatic style of their political masters find themselves in the room and those that don't, don't, right? So um, there's this guy, Karl von Schubert, who is the kind of the, he's the uh, secretary, basically the top political officer in the German civil service. He thinks just like Stresemann does, and therefore he's intimately involved in the negotiations at all times, right? Then there are these interests now. The, there's this interesting question of what, what, what would diplomats' predispositions be, professional diplomats, independent of their political leadership? And I think that's probably something that varies by country and also varies by time period. But, um, uh, but I think at the time, most of these guys were realists. And actually, that was very frustrating to be a realist in the interwar years because they felt buffeted by national political forces. And the most obvious example that I covered in this research is when Poincaré negotiates, tries to negotiate a bilateral security deal with the British in the early 20s, 1922, 1923. And um, Poincaré, even though he's in this very weak position, because the British, or the French need the British a lot more than the British need the French. And Poincaré knows this, but decides to essentially act like the British need him. Right? That's coercive bargaining. You're not going to let people know your weakness. They'll exploit you. In fact, you're going to say, this is unacceptable. I will not take your candy. Get your candy off my desk. Right? But it was free. Right? That's what they act like. And so Poincaré decides to act aloof like he doesn't care. He makes these outrageous demands that the British say, this is a non-starter. We're not going to talk about this. And then it's left for the professional diplomats to try to suit over. And so there's this, uh, there's this, uh, the, the ambassador, the British ambassador, the French ambassador to Britain, this guy named Saint-Olaire, would, would constantly say, he didn't mean it, right? He's very interested in this. Please don't go away. And Poincaré would write him these scathing things like, you did not get my permission to say that, right? And so you get this obvious tension. But at the end of the day, Poincaré wrecks the negotiations because Poincaré is involved and Poincaré calls the shots. Um, so that's, that's, so now, could you imagine a kind of ordinary day-to-day -day politics in which the professional diplomats have their own diplomatic style or right, or which I have to take their intrinsic bureaucratic interests or, um, or their own particular um, approach and diplomatic style? Seriously, yes. Do I, and I choose these in a way because they matter more, right, or at least IR cares about them more, but also because I can avoid those whole principal-agent dynamics and problems that would problematize the argument. Um, the question about the 1930s, which is another question of like, why bother? Why do the 1920s? We know what happened in the 1930s, right? What's the point? All right, and there was the, the idea was this was going to be a book about the 1920s and 20s and 30s, and then I realized that that was crazy. I can't write a book about the 1920s and the 1930s, right? So I wrote a book about the 1920s, and I thought I was going to write a chapter in the 1930s at the end, and that, of course, is all <coughs> What am I going to say about the 1930s? I'm going to say a couple things, right? First of all, there's a lot about this argument, even though this argument is about diplomacy and not so much about the use of force vis-a-vis -vis diplomacy, right? But still, there's things that can be said. First of all, diploma, uh, the, the, the carnival period breaks down not in the early 30s, but before. 
And it's because the French right comes into power. And the French and, and um, Stresemann tries to continue his, his pragmatic style with the French right, but the French right doesn't want to play a game, or doesn't want to bar, or doesn't want to play that game, doesn't like Briand, marginalizes Briand, even though they can't throw him under the bus because he's so popular for his success at Locarno. Right? So that kills the spirit of Locarno, and they stumble along to another agreement based on brinksmanship bargaining that we would expect from a, uh, a, a kind of realist versus a coercive bargainer uh, in the form of a reparations, um, uh, a reparations agreement that's tied also to early end of evacuation. So then you get, of course, Hugenberg, the DNVP lurches to the right to compete with the Nazis. They essentially ally. Well, yeah, the Nazis don't, uh, you know, engage in coercive bargaining. Well, there's nothing I, I would not, it's not like that's unexpected to me. And then there's this interesting question about the British. And I think that what I want to do with this later is to show, and other people have done this, it wouldn't just be me, but what does pragmatic statecraft tell you to do when you are in a position of Concede, right? It's instrumental appeasement. What was Chamberlain? Chamberlain was a realist. And there are lots of people working now in, in, in uh, kind of revisionist, pro-Chamberlain, one could call them, historians who are saying, you know, Chamberlain felt like the, he didn't really have a choice, that, and that this was realistic statesmanship, whether it was, uh, whether it was essentially balancing uh, um, uh, the British economy against its strategic, or how far it could stretch, protecting the empire, um, whether it was biding time for armament, any, any number of instrumental pragmatic considerations that turned out to be wrong, but were nonetheless very pragmatic. And, when, and so I'm thinking about doing something about that kind of thinking, as opposed to the Churchill thinking, which was emotional, romantic, right? Basically said, yes, we have these problems, but we still shall fight, right? Because we have to. And that was not pragmatic, right? And Churchill turned out to be right, right? But still, at the same time, I think it gives you purchase on that. And then the last reason why I think this matters is the success of the Locarno period, even though they stumble through to the late 1920s, the final outcome of this process is that France and Britain agreed to remove troops, their occupation troops, five years early, from 1935 to 1930. Okay. What would have happened had occupation forces still been in Germany when Hitler came into power, right? There would have ne they would have never pulled them out. I just can't, I, Versailles or no Versailles, I don't, can't see them pulling them out. And therefore, the whole course becomes different, right? Um, now, of course, though, there's huge endogeneity problems here, right? This is like, this is, you know, a butterfly flaps its wings. We don't know this counterfactual. But at the same time, it's almost like, but there's this inadvertent, um, uh, tragic side to the Locarno period in that it does at some level set the stage for certain maneuvers that Hitler makes later. All right, that was long. <laughs> so we'll take another round of questions. I, 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 I take it that the world got Hitler because of the French right. Is that? Uh, well, a lot of people did blame the French right, but I mean, it's, it's, it's a combination of factors. Everything's a combination of factors. Let's take uh, Frank here and then. Um, I was wondering, I, I wanted to focus on the value, as opposed to the values. Okay. And instead of asking all, you know, a whole lot of questions about particular historical interpretation, I was wondering how your model would code perhaps the most important act of diplomacy in the interwar period, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. Oh, God. Who's right, who's left? I mean, here is a, here is a, a treaty where enormous empathy, what, what were the terms you used? You made huge concessions. Uh, you've got the very pro-social motivations, maximize joint benefits. 
it pretty much meets all of your, what I can see as being your sort of uh, standards for a pro-social, um, pragmatic diplomacy. And, and, yeah, and if you were to kind of go one step further, because much of your talk actually is very much in the A.G.B. Taylor kind of vein, the 1930s is all about successful Nazi diplomacy with whether it deals with Italy, a former adversary, UK, a future adversary, Poland, Soviet Union. Uh, so I guess the question, it somewhat relates to, Je to, to Josh, is what's the value of this in the end if it's all going to lead to um, problems in the end? And then how am I to think about what, as it looks like an extraordinarily successful case of diplomacy um, between two really, really, really awful bad states who mean much harm to the world. Right. The first question, let's uh, turn to the <laughs> <laughs> There's more? Yeah. Jesus. Okay. Right here the middle. Yeah. Well, um, just a quick statement. Um, Wilson had this idealistic view, I think, of peace forever. So my question is, why, why did the League of Nations not work? What, what happened there? I don't know background about it too much, but why did it uh, fail? Okay, let's take a third question. Yeah, here from Kate. Uh, so, Brian, I'm really intrigued by your, your model up here. I love two by two matrices. I hate them, and I found myself <laughs> making one. And I was like, oh, I, I guess I made it. <laughs> well, simplistic mise means simplistic heuristics. But um, I'm particularly curious about the dynamics of the diplomatic style. So, the kind of stories you tell seem to indicate that individuals are relatively inert, that they come with, a, hmm. you know, somewhere in one of those boxes. But I'm wondering more about the learning or socialization effect of diplomacy itself. So do, do diplomats, as they gain experience or contingent upon their past experiences in di diplomacy, change their styles? Do they gain different motivations? Do they move into different boxes? And is there something interesting you can tell us about the dynamics of the diplomatic style? Um, because what you have here is a rather deterministic story. Right. And, and therefore, I know, and then it makes it look like the agency that I was so proud of showing, right? Is, exactly. is left. Um, are there others? Or let's, let's go ahead and take those. I've been squashed enough, haven't I? Mm -hmm. um, anyways, um, I, I can't say I know enough about the molotov ribbentrop pact to make a definitive statement on what's going on there. But I, I do need to separate between a theory of kind of diplomacy and a theory of foreign policy, which is to say, if countries have a mutually agreeable outcome that's, you know, that's right there that they can do, right, they can do it, right? The question becomes the, the value of diplomacy is in, is in a set that I show, and the reason that the 20s work nicely as a set of cases is that you have some cases in which the interests are really closely aligned, but the different bargaining styles or different diplomatic styles can screw it up. I don't say it's always going to screw it up, but I say it's more likely, right? Everything in political science, I think probabilistic. And qualitative research oftentimes gets in the problem by drawing these two-by-two two matrix and making it look like saying, if, if X, then, and if Y, then you get this box. And I just don't think that's how the world works. Um, but so, so that I would say that now, as far as the kind of bargaining style of, uh, of these two countries, it, it raises, well, first of all, it raises this, this issue, which I've always, this has been the Achilles, I would say if this Story has an Achilles heel. It's in its um, uh, what's the word? What's the word I'm looking for? It's it's silence about the not or the fascist right and the communist left, which don't fit easily into this argument. 
and basically most of the moral foundations literature and the left and the way I'm thinking about left and right are really uh, between this kind of liberal left and kind of authoritarian right or conservative uh, uh, or conservative right versus liberal left. And therefore, the communist left is not pro-social. It's just not. It's not based on enlightenment thinking. All the moral foundations, the ethics of autonomy, the things that I say drive pro-social policies, right, are, 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 are things that value the intrinsic worth of the human being. Communist, communism does not value the intrinsic worth of, of, of the individual human being. Right? It's been, and there's lots of work I could point you to, and I'm not an expert on this, right? But, so I don't expect the, the, Nazi, or the, the Soviets to come in and say, let's, should we all hold hands and let's talk about how this works out? Especially because Europe is, in the, is, in the, uh, is transfixed by this ideological struggle, and they, the communists feel encircled by countries who have directly opposing interests to them, or I should say it might be more the other way around, that all the Western capitalist countries fear that the Soviets have no interest in communism because all they want to do is export communism, right? So how, now, so therefore what was communist diplomatic style and how would I, what would my expectations be? My guests are probably more in the way of coercive bargaining, etc. The Nazis though, and I spoke, I spoke, I didn't, I didn't speak, uh, when I said the Nazis, of course, would engage in the course of bargaining, that's not actually true. And I don't actually mean that. So I, I, that kind of slipped out. The interesting <laughs> thing about Nazi diplomacy is it's almost sui generis uh, character. And this is, again, something I might like to do next if I do transition to the 30s. The, the, the fascinating thing about the Nazis is their ability to engage in coercive bargaining without the others necessarily feeling that it was coercive bargaining. What do I mean by that? I mean by that the Nazis' great success was acting, was, was in fooling others into thinking, or was not, the Nazis' great success was in not acting like the old nationalists. The old nationalists would go into, an, uh, into, a, into a meeting room, and they would bang on the table and say, we demand everything because you owe it to us, and the Versailles Treaty was unjust, and they were overly emotional. And Hitler was extremely calculating, right? And much better, uh, and much better about appearing reasonable than, than the French, the German nationals. This is my very crude reading of the situation. And yet, at the same time, um, uh, so, 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 so there's that. There's the kind of cold realism, and yet at the same time, Hitler has, uh, had nationalist goals, much more like the far right, right? Um, and therefore, had these kind of ambitions that were much bigger than, say, Stresemann's and his. That, so therefore, Nazi diplomacy seems to be maybe something completely different, and maybe a kind of a hodgepodge of different styles. It's something I haven't really quite grappled with. And because I don't really understand communists, and I don't really understand fascists, good reason not to focus so much on, not on, on the 1930s, and another way of me dodging that question. So I successfully dodged that question. I'm going to leave aside the failure of the weed, because I don't think that I, I, I it's a big question, and I, I don't think it necessarily, that this model lends itself explaining the failure of the league, except for the fact that you've got the, the right, which doesn't really like it, and the realists who are willing to use it for certain instrumental purposes, but never really believe in its worth. And therefore, when real, real important events hit the league, it can't really cope with it, which is what the realists always said would happen. Uh, and then Kate's great question about um, learning or socialization. Um, so, 
do people change their diplomatic style based on experience? Probably. Um, I don't know. I don't see any of it, right? Uh, Noah, the way that people adjust is they kind of, it's almost the way that they adjust is built into the ideology. So a liberal will switch from a preference for negotiation to a coercive bargaining, right? But it's based on a feel, a felt violation of liberal norms. I want to make a deal with you. Let's do something that benefits us both, right? Oh, you're not cooperating me. Well, go to hell then. And I'm just going to. And you see this all the time, right? You said, and the, the the case that I show here, it's all it's a big part of understanding why, for instance, the British left swings against Germany. The British left is very apologetic uh, and apologist about Germany in the First World War, right? Wants wants essentially thinks Versailles is terribly unjust. And by the 1930s, this, especially the center left of the parties become the most vehement anti-appeasers. And that I think is because of a a perceived Nazi violation of the norm of reciprocity, which is a liberal norm. Um, so, so, uh, so there's that. So, but that's built in. I expect that. And there's literature that shows that basically people who have this pro-social motivation don't like it when other people don't have a pro-social motivation. It, they might be forgiving to a certain point, but eventually they reach the point where they engage in essentially this lowest common denominator kind of bargaining, and that's why when you look at these different, this is like, I have cases that fit all these different boxes, and we're talking about crudely about dyads, right? Basically, if you get a pragmatist with, um, our, what, what am I looking at here? You, I'm talking about this box here. Essentially, you get these kind of, there's uh, sometimes when a, a coercive, uh, sometimes when you get a pragmatist versus um, uh, a coercive bargainer, the pragmatist will adjust. They're like, okay, I can't make a deal with this guy. No, whatever. I'm just going to have to essentially put my foot down and not and not concede anything. That's kind of what I call lowest common denominator. But it's not. It doesn't have this emotional and normative valence that what happens when the left is involved. And the instance here that really matters is that um, is when the French turn, the French right comes back into power, and Briand is essentially thrown under the bus. Um, and France takes a more coercive bargaining line, it really pisses the British off when the, Brit uh, the British Labor Party, and when they come into power, they start to coerce the French government because of how they think they're treating the Germans unfairly. So they're willing to basically engage in coercive bargaining out of a felt violation of the norm of reciprocity on behalf of another country. And they, and they basically say, okay, if the French, if you're not going to negotiate in good faith and you're not going to allow these issues to be linked and find a, a good faith compromise uh, with the Germans, then we're going to start removing our troops from the, from the Rhineland unilaterally, and we're going to undermine your bargain leverage. And the French go, oh, wait, wait, oh, okay, we can talk, right? I think that's interesting. But um, anyway, that's my long-winded. But as far as real socialization, this is a psychology piece, right? I, I think in psychological terms, and therefore, I have a hard time seeing socialization, I'm gonna be honest, right? I look for it empirically because I'm, I'm worried that I'm gonna miss it, but I, I just don't see that learning experience in the, in the 1920s. Let's take a final uh, set of questions and then uh, collect it here. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious if you can speak to the integrity of your model when applied to more contemporary examples and um, you know, situations that would demand you know, relatively complex diplomatic negotiations. Sure. The immediate example of Spain's monetary you know, more in Egypt than negotiate that. Uh, you know, the new balance of power is more like that. But, right. Um, or are we better 
serve, you know, relying on the sort of more historical models to look back, or you know, does that utility when evaluating these decisions for contemporary contributors? That's a quick question. Great question. Any other ones? Yeah, right here, Eugene, and then. So, <clears throat> I guess I'm still struggling to find out what problem you're trying to fix. In the sense that you're starting out with this appeal to agency, um, and I don't know who disagrees with you about that. So you said there's this great structuralist bias. I'm kind of thinking. Can you name me five really good books that talk about diplomacy in a very theoretically meaningful way? Well, no, no, no. So, so, then so, they, then, they, then so, they don't care. Well, no. Think of it this way, Brian. So the the um, uh, realist historians, you, know, you mentioned E.H. Carr or, or Williamson Murray or someone, they all believe agency was pivotal I agree. in the 1930s, and they write all about it because they're huge critiques. I'm talking they about say, modern international relations theory. I'm not talking about these okay, guys. In so, fact, so a big part of this is reclaiming classical realism for realists. But, the structural realist, the, the terrible thing about the structural realist revolution isn't giving up on realism because it takes realpolitik and, pre and presents it as as taken for granted statecraft that everyone will do because the structure will force no, them. No one would say that. So, can, so no, Ken they Walt, won't because Ken the neoclassical realists are smart enough not to agree with that. But, but Ken, everyone Ken else, Waltz or John Mearsheimer or whoever you would want to take as your prototypical structural realist, believe absolutely that there are all kinds of particular outcomes to diplomacy that, you know, countries screw stuff up all the time. And what right? was their explanation? And, well, it's, I mean, it's epiphenomenal. It doesn't exist, so right? I think I'm fair in saying that they ignore it. Uh, sorry, I'm just, I'm... It just seems like, I don't know what you're, what you're adding to an explanation that anyone just, if people say, so like put it in economic terms, in, in bargaining over trade policy, right, there is... Um, a range of outcomes on the Pareto frontier, and the economic model doesn't tell you exactly what you will get in terms of and in you fact, know, the price of no exchange. possible mechanism for reaching the Pareto frontier because it assumes but, that everyone engages in coercive bargaining in which no one can actually but, reveal information to expose the but, existence of a Pareto frontier. Some, somehow, everyone understands that in reality, there is some deal where there is a price. It's just like, it's, it's, that's in the, it's, it's in the weeds. It's like your response to Jamie where you're saying that, um, uh, you know, it doesn't really matter if it's a circular or a rectangular table at the negotiation. Right. Um, you know, somehow there is a negotiation where some price comes out that's somewhere on the frontier. Or somebody makes a choice, and, you know, kind of what you've boiled this down to as far as I can understand is that, you know, Different partisan politics leads to, you know, different bargaining behavior. But the bargaining behavior, you know, it's some, somehow it's they, they they kept voting for, you know, right parties that couldn't reach a deal, or they couldn't recognize that there was no deal and you needed to smack the Germans or whatever the outcome was. I mean, it's I, I don't understand how you helped solve a problem of telling me what happened over the course of the 20s and the 30s, which is people have always known, or have known for decades, that the non-German powers kind of screwed up. And there's a debate. Did they screw up about intelligence assessments? Did they screw up about when to start mobilizing? Did they screw up about the year to Those are, 30s the questions. Those are not 20s questions. Those are 20s questions, no, too. 
like your, like your, I mean, we should get out of this, out of this fight. But the one that, the one that, that you posed yourself was, if the British and the French had just stayed occupying the Rhineland for longer, if they'd known that in the long run you have to do what people proposed for Germany after World War II, you got to do cartilage, right? This country doesn't get to come back, right? If they just stuck with it, you're, you posed that counterfactual hypothetical that in the 20s, they could have prevented all of this. But you couldn't have foreseen that based on the, diplomat, uh, the diplomacy of the 1920s, right? I, I, I don't really understand this question, right? Because you admitted that basically none of this, even if the structural, even if we take, we take your premise that structural realists are plenty willing to recognize that diplomacy matters, you also are admitting to me that structural realists don't have an explanation for this process, right? So, so therefore, but and then you're asking me, what have I added? Well, I've added exactly what you said, which is what the structural realists say matters, but don't give us any idea of how it works. And my point is that, is that the whole point of the book is right, is that there are outcomes that sh there are Pareto frontier outcomes, right? That under bargaining theory, people magically get to in which they both maximize their self-interest or reach a point in which. Uh, it's better than their current status quo, right? You can only do that through a, pro through a certain process of diplomatic exchange that reveals private information so you know the existence of that Pareto frontier. So basically, coercive bargaining models are based, that reach win-win outcomes are based on magic, right? I'm saying it's not magic. I'm saying you need a particular configuration, a particular way of engaging diplomatically to reach that. And in fact, there are plenty of instances in which it's even known to actors that there is, or it's, it, well, let me put that differently. There's, there's plenty of situations, for instance, in the early 1920s, in which there should have been an obvious alignment of interests we know after the fact, because interests were so similar, and because they adopted the, in, in a, what I would say, uh, the, well, because they adopt certain diplomatic styles, they can't reach it. They can't get to the, to the obvious Pareto frontier because of the way they negotiate. So we had one final question, and this one about contemporary relevance. Can you state it briefly and then give Brian the last word? Just oh, I'm sorry, then. I forgot about Yeah, that. let's, yeah, let's yeah. take this so one I just time. wanted to look at Richard Holbrook, who, who is in some ways the epitome of a brilliant individual, yeah, yeah. but who is definitely known to be coercive right. and also highly integrative. So how, do you, how would you compare and say, in fact, it's almost more intellectual power, skill, rather than any of these things, and they're not really affiliated with uh, particular Yeah, I, I don't, that's, that's a fantastic question that I just don't answer to, just because I don't know what I, like about Holbrook, but I, I think it's right. It's like, the, it, you know, this, that, what a Holbrook example is going to say, oh boy, this is simple-minded. And this is, because this is political science, right? This is going to be more simple-minded than the actual reality. And, and, and that's, that's actually kind of a tragedy. The also tragedy is this is perceived as being an overly complicated, nuanced political science argument, when in fact I can't cope with an obvious question like, what is Richard Holbrook, which I, which I just don't know the answer to. But I think, obviously, these personal idiosyncrasies of some people are just more skillful, right? People are, some people are very good at kind of adopting the right, uh, you know, adopting the right, um, uh, the right style at the right moment, right? So I wish I had an answer to that question. I really wish. But I do want to get back to this kind of contemporary relevance question. So um, I think the most, the, the thing, what I've decided to do because I am uncomfortable with the, overly historical nature of the book, right, is to write a conclusion that I'm just now starting to sketch about how this might help us understand certain dynamics of the Middle East peace process, right, particularly is domestic Israeli politics, where we see 
all of those three different diplomatic styles. We see obviously with the with the obviously there's this clear division that everybody talks about between um, between a kind of hardline coercive bargaining approach taken by Likud uh, versus uh, a, a more win-win outcome taken by Labour at least since Rabin, right, maybe not beforehand, right? It's also clear, though, that Rabin is, is, is no idealistic appeaser, right? He is not under illusions, but he wants to explore the dynamics of peace. And then you get this divide in Likud when, well, and then you get these, you, the Camp David Accords, which don't reach, uh, which don't reach fruition, and then this here, in a big way in which the Israeli left makes a profound switch away from integrative negotiation because the, the, um, the Palestinians, uh, the second intifada is perceived as Arafat's fault for slapping away the Israeli hand of peace. And therefore, the, the, the left, the public opinion shows that the, the Israeli right doesn't shift their views of, of the Palestinians nearly as much as the Israeli left. And I think it's precisely that dynamic. And then you get this question of, well, what do we do about it? Well, you could, in the coup, you have, you have, of course, we can just pursue settlements, right? Keep using that, perhaps not bargain at all, um, and, and at the very least build settlements that, uh, that strengthen our bargaining hand. But then you get this Sharon outcome. And what is Sharon? Sharon is, is pulling away, this, has this idea of disengagement. Right? Which essentially, let's give them Gaza, maybe make them a concession, but only so that we can essentially get rid of this thing that we don't want to deal with, right? And focus on the more vital interest, which is protecting Israeli security. That's a classic pragmatist line. But what does he need to do? And then he tries to put this through the coup, and what does the coup do? He says no. Right? He has to form his own political party, and who's he pull? The center right. Those are the pragmatists. And they don't want to deal with the Palestinians because they don't think a deal is possible with the Palestinians, but they also don't believe in this kind of coercive bargaining line. So that is something I'm just starting to sketch, but I think it works decently, right? It explains certain dynamics of, of, of the, the Middle East peace process. And obviously, this is something that's ongoing. Now, what does it tell us about the peace process? It tells us we're screwed, right? It just tells us we're in trouble, right? Because uh, if, we, if we think that what's going to be necessary is some significant amount of Israeli concessions, right, and a willingness to talk to the Palestinians on the basis of good faith and goodwill, it's not going to happen, right? not, with, not with Netanyahu. So that makes me sad as someone who wants peace in the Middle East. But again, that's this, right? It's very hard to negotiate with a co coercive bargain, right? It's just hard because they tend to induce a kind of lowest denominator approach. So basically, it takes two to, to do integrative negotiation, and it only takes one to do coercive bargaining, right? And, uh, and induce that on all, on all the parties. And therefore, that's why I think diplomacy can be really difficult sometimes. And we'll have to leave it there. Thanks so much.